Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman and I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is October 14th, 2021, and it is my pleasure to have with me today Dr. Anders Persson. Anders is a political scientist specializing in EU-Israeli-Palestinian relations. He is a senior lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Linnaeus University in Sweden. And you can see his full bio and a compendium of his work at www.dranderspersson.com. And you can also follow him and you should follow him on Twitter at, and it's it's the at sign 82 Anders Persson, A-N-D-E-R-S-P-E-R-S-S-O-N. So Dr. Person Anders, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank uh, you, Laura. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to have you on today because as a lot of people maybe don't know, um, yesterday, a major international event took place in Sweden. It was the Malmo International Forum on Holocaust Remembrance and Combating Antisemitism. This event um, was organized by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, better known as the IHRA, or as its friends like to call it, IRA. Um, and it was the largest gathering on anti-Semitism in years. So the background to this event, and really why you're here today, um, is the growing pressure that, that you know, we have been tracking, I have been reporting on and following um, for now a few years. It's growing pressure in Europe and the US and around the world for governments, academia, media, social media, everyone to adopt the IRA's definition of antisemitism, which is a definition that arguably has less to do with fighting actual Jew hatred and more to do with delegitimizing and potentially legislating to, to limit criticism of Israel and Zionism. And it does this by conflating them with antisemitism. And we've done lots of podcasts and webinars and I've written about this, so we don't have to dig too deep into that piece of it. If people are interested, I'd say, you know, go onto the FMEP website and you can read more about that context. Um, and we can talk about that as much as you want as well. Anyway, but that is the context. This conference, the announcement of the conference, the statements that we saw around the conference when it was being organized, preceding it, raised a lot of concerns for those of us who are watching the march of the IRA definition across Europe and the world. It raised concerns about what this conference would mean in terms of um, igniting further efforts, you know, fueling further efforts to get countries to adopt it and to implement it and to impose it. So you were there. Um, I know you weren't actually in the conference itself, but you're on the periphery. You were commenting, commenting in the Swedish media. You probably had a closer eye view than anyone who wasn't actually in the conference. So I want to get your perspective on this. Um, and I want to get your perspective both on the conference itself and its implications. So that's the introduction. Let's dive in. I first want to ask you a really basic question, which I'm curious about to know more. Why Malmo? <laughs> Why, why did this international conference take place in a small town in Sweden that most of us have never heard of? Well, it has to do with, with a lot of reasons. Uh, Malmö today uh, has very big problems with antisemitism. And you have, have had that for a little over a decade or so. And, and the story here is that Malmö took in a lot of refugees after World War II, and many of them were Jewish, that came to Sweden uh, with the, what was called the White Buses, organized by Count Folke Bernadotte. He later showed up as a mediator in Jerusalem and he was killed by Lehi in 
1848. Uh, but a lot of Jews came to Sweden after uh, the Second World War. And then later waves of refugees came from Hungary in 56, from Chile in 73, and from Lebanon in 82. A lot of Palestinians came uh, to Malmö from Lebanon uh, in 1982, and later Iraqis uh, and Syrian refugees as well. So today Malmö has a large Arab population. Uh, and there have been a lot of problems for uh, the Jewish community in Malmö pretty much since the first Gaza war of 2008. We've seen a lot of uh, attacks, harassment, discrimination, and Malmö's Jewish community has gone down over the past 20 years from around 900 members to around 400 or so. So that of course make you know, the whole hate crime and statistics even more appalling since we have, you know, crime is rising while the population is, is, is going down. We see a big problem in, in, in Malmö schools as well, where, for example, you know, maps of Israel are being ripped out of, of uh, geography books. Uh, when Israel is mentioned in books, the students paint it over. And so there is a big, there have been a lot of problems for Malmö over the past decade or so. Obama sent his envoy there, Hannah Rosenthal, in, uh, in 2012. So this is sort of a bit of the background to Malmö's problems. And, and Sweden, the Swedish government, wanted sort of to show that they are doing things, they're taking this seriously. And uh, this is one of the reasons why, why the conference was placed in Malmö. It also has to do with domestic politics. There is an election coming up in Sweden next year. The government is being criticized from the right from, for not taking these issues seriously. So that's another reason why they chose to do this, uh, do it in Malmö. So that's sort of a little bit about the background for why Malmö was, uh, was chosen. And then the focus of the conference was twofold. The first focus was remembering, basically looking back, hearing stories from the Holocaust survivors, uh, and the other focus was react, basically looking forward. Uh, and the specific focus here was on social media. Uh, so all the, uh, the, the tech giants were represented by, by top officials, uh, and that was a specific theme uh, for the conference. But there was, in fact, little talk about what everybody sees as the big elephant in the room, which is the working definition of anti-Semitism, the examples that comes with it, and the role of Israel uh, here. So surprisingly few references to, to, to the definition and the examples in the speeches given by the, uh, the dignitaries. Now, uh, Swedish officials told me before the conference that it was a sort of a conscious move by the organizers of focusing sort of on remembrance and, and uh, you know how to to these kind of things and not focusing on the definitions and the examples which is uh yeah so that, that was a conscious move so it, it's interesting when you lay out the the situation in malmo um what's striking to me is i mean in some ways makes it probably very attractive for this conference you basically address you 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 touch on both of the things that the ira definition is actually trying to get to which is the actual anti-semitism and criticism or targeting of Israel, which is mm -hmm. arguably, I think it can, I would argue in most cases, isn't anti-Semitism, it's a political discourse, right? Mm -hmm. If you had someone from a, one country that where they said they'd been expelled or their history says they were expelled and they were you know, 
looking at maps and saying, I don't want to see this on a map, that wouldn't be considered a religious attack. That would be considered a political um, debate. <laughs> in this context, it gets melded in with the discussion of anti-Semitism. So you have all these things present at once, which I guess makes this a very, um, very appropriate place for this conference. Um, the Can you talk a little, you covered a lot in that first answer. I'm gonna, probably gonna ask you to come back and talk in more detail about some of those points. Who who attended the Malmo conference? What was this just a bunch of you know you know people who work on anti-Semitism at a working level showing up and having meetings and or was this actually a, a high level conference where the level of representation says something about what we would expect to be the impact of the conference down the road? Yeah, well, uh, <clears throat> heads of the states and governments from for, from around fifty countries uh, were invited. Uh, but only very few showed up uh, in person, uh, mostly from small countries in, in Eastern and, and, and Central Europe. Not even the, 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 the prime minister from our neighboring countries came in, in person, which is, uh, no, which is a bit striking. Uh, so very few were there uh, in person. Uh, they had hoped for, uh, to get uh, the Vice President Kamala Harris from the US. Uh, she did not show up. Blinken gave a, a video address uh, instead. Uh, so that was, uh, I think, a big, big disappointment for, for the organizers, even if they're not saying that loudly. We should remember here, of course, that when the original Stockholm conference took place 20 years ago, uh, a lot of prime ministers showed up. So that, uh, but of course, some people speculated that this has to do with uh, you know, the corona pandemic situation that that made leaders reluctant to travel. I'm not really convinced about that because we see more and more leaders travel when, when, uh, when they have to. Uh, another uh, explanation given was that Israel had you know, <clears throat> been reluctant uh, of who to send. Uh, and in the end, they sent the uh, Minister of Diaspora Affairs, Nachman Shai, which I think is to be considered a quite low-level minister in the Israeli government. Uh, President Herzog gave a, a speech via video. Uh, so, so, so very few leaders showed up uh, in real life. Uh, there were a lot of officials from the major Jewish organizations, uh, and there were some top officials from, from the EU. Uh, uh, Guterres, uh, uh, the Secretary General of the UN, gave a speech uh, online. Uh, and there were also top officials there from uh, the big tech companies, YouTube, TikTok, uh, and Facebook. Uh, so these were sort of some of the people that uh, uh, participated. Also, I should say that pundits from the right uh, say that since the Swedish government is not serious about fighting anti-Semitism, in their view, that that may have sort of also affected the, the uh, the people who, who I'm not I'm not really buying that because we saw uh, that all the Jewish uh, or most of the Jewish organizations uh, their top officials were there. Right. That makes me smile just because you know I follow this very very closely and I follow all of the the incredibly excited statements congratulating Hungary and Poland for their work in fighting anti-Semitism. The idea that somehow um, that is credible work in fighting anti-Semitism, but Sweden isn't is, is actually kind of funny. Um, I want to ask you, bringing it back to the IRA definition, you said that this wasn't a main theme, it didn't come up, but it did come up on the margins. I mean, I saw press releases about Australia. I saw something, I think the day, be, the day before, two days before about Poland. Um, can you talk sort of about, you know, either 
what formally was said about the definition about this being at the center of fighting anti-Semitism or what was on the margins in terms of pressure for countries to come out and say, yes, we're going to do this. Because that that definitely was a theme in, in the media or, or in the sort of press releases coming out of some of the Jewish organizations. Well, as I said, there were, there were very few mentioning of, of, of IRA in, in the speeches uh, given by, by the top delegates. Uh, Australia uh, did announce that they were going to adopt uh, IRA uh, when the conference uh, took place. And, and uh, there was no final declaration, uh, which is also a little bit weird for a big gathering uh, like this. So instead, countries had to give three uh, pledges. And, and, and the US gave three, uh, you know, one million to combat anti-Semitism online in the MENA region, uh, a new leadership program for, for combating anti-Semitism, uh, and a million to, to fight distortion and denials in, in Eastern Europe, which is, I mean, $2 million from the US, which is, I think, a, a ridiculously small amount of money uh, in this kind of settings. And, UK, and, all, and, and all of that is focused on an actual real anti-Semitism. It's not yeah, yeah, yeah. on the yeah, new no. anti-Semitism. No, but for example, the UK gave a pledge to, to use IRA for, for in, in higher education. Uh, for educating teachers, uh, which of course raises uh, a lot of difficult questions. I, ha I had a debate on public Swedish public radio with the head of the Swedish Jewish community, where I raised this issue of implementation of IRA, uh, because it, it, it has gotten a sort of quasi legal status where it's more and more finding itself in education, in law, in police training, in courts, and in these kind of, of settings. And for me, as a university teacher, it, it raises question of how we're going to deal with this in the classroom. For example, let's say if a student says that she or he believes that Israel is um, racist, a, a racist endeavor somehow, which is sort of directly breaking one of, of, of the examples. How are we going to deal with that? Are we going to sort of report it or punish it or counter it or sort of do, doing nothing about it? And when I raised this issue with Swedish officials, they have no clue whatsoever how, how this is going to be dealt with sort of practically in real life situations, for example, in a university uh, classroom. And this, of course, I think is, 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 is very telling about how sort of little people have thought this through what it's going to do uh, in the practical real world. Because if you get a situation like this, for example, somebody breaking against IRA in a classroom, you know, it, it raises all kinds of difficult issues from, you know, say freedom of speech of actually saying these kind of things to, of course, doing nothing, which of course would render IRA sort of meaningless if, 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 if you know, if it, would, if it would have no meaning at all. So, so, uh, so th this, I mean, the whole question of the implementation is, I think, a huge, huge question, which raises fundamental issues about freedom of expressions and, you know, in the U.S., the First and Second Amendment, and, and here with our basic laws and constitutions in Sweden. Yeah, again, for people who are listening, we've done a lot of, a lot of work on this, and, and one of the things I'll, I wrote an article on this a while ago, it's fascinating looking at the folks who are pushing very hard for adoption of IRA, for example, on social media, and if you look at, there was a, a set of letters, there's a big consortium of right-wing Jewish American organizations that wrote letters to um, main social media platforms demanding um, that they take down 
anti-Semitic content based on IRA. And all of the examples that they gave of anti-Semitic content that had to be taken down was effectively expressions of Palestinian historical narrative, right? Right of return, exile, whatever. I mean, this is fundamental stuff, which, I mean, they didn't, that was it. It wasn't like there was any like, oh, you know, Nazi white supremacy. It was exclusively focused on shutting up Palestinians and, and Palestinian, um, the lived Palestinian historical narrative. Um, which is is quite an extraordinary um, leap from you know trying to stop Jew hatred. Um, so I, I could add here as well when you're talking about so- social media that the uh, a top official from uh, from YouTube was was interviewed by by Swedish TV uh, yesterday. Uh, he was asked this question: What are you going to do about all the anti-Semitism on their uh, on their platform? And he said that they were developing new software. For for uh, for finding this and, and and stopping it, but this of course raises you know a fundamental question of I mean, how do you define it? You know, because I mean, if you're gonna stop it and going after it, you need to define it first. So so, so you know, so in all of their efforts, the social media giants, you know, the definition is key in order to sort of clean up their their uh, their platforms. And I asked some of my friends who were you know, at the conference whether this big issue of labels on social media postings were discussed uh, uh, at the conference and they said as far as they could see no uh, but we should also keep in mind that you know IRA is not really a transparent or, or organizations and there might be things you know said not really openly and, and this is also of course a work that will go on uh, so, so the whole issue of labels on social media is I think a big issue uh, from the future it's also something that the Israeli Ministry of Strategic Affairs faced uh, in a report earlier this year that that is something that they want to uh, to adopt. Yeah, I mean, that 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 report you're talking about essentially was there's the argument that fine, you don't need to adopt it into law, because one of the arguments mm-hmm. the defenders of the IRA definition say is this isn't about it's not meant to be law. That is never our intention except clearly that's what people want to have happen. So the argument now is being made, well, you don't need to adopt it into law. You can just adopt it into practice and put, you know, warnings, this is anti-Semitic on people's posts. I will say that in the past few months, I have increasingly come across, for instance, a tweet, somebody, a Palestinian retweeting a headline from Haaretz, and it's got a warning on it of offensive content. It's a Haaretz article. Um, I was looking at a video online the other day a documentary on YouTube posted, it was a documentary made by an Israeli filmmaker about the Anti-Defamation League, and that had a warning on it before I could click through to actually watch the video. It's an Israeli-made documentary. Um, so obviously a, a documentary that, that is, is deeply um, uh, rejected by, by people who don't want to see criticism of Israel or organizations that are, that are working on this. Anyway, so... What's interesting to me, one thing you said is interesting to me, which which I had not heard until you said, I didn't know this until you said it. This, you said the Swedish organizers made a, a specific decision to not make this explicitly about the IRA definition. Can you talk about that? Because that that says something interesting. Um, I mean, is it a tactical decision? We'll get it done without mentioning it. Or if we mention it, we'll know that we'll end up having a conversation we just don't want to have in public. I mean, what, what does that say? Well, I think what it says is that there is a bigger story behind this. And the bigger story behind this is that from the beginning, Sweden was one of the countries that did not want to adopt the the examples. They could live with a definition that is called the frame because the definition is in a frame uh, on the website. 
And, Literally, and when, very... when, sorry, just be clear. And when Ender says frame on the website, it's like in a little text box, right? Yeah, so you've yeah. got it in a little text box. That's the definition. And then you've got these examples appended to it, but those examples are treated as part of the definition. And for instance, when ex-president ex Trump adopted the definition via an executive order, he explicitly stated, including the definitions, um, contemporary examples. And that is generally how it is adopted, explicitly including the examples. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, uh, so Sweden did not want to adopt the examples. Uh, and a lot of officials, or several different officials have told me that Sweden tried to fight as far as it was possible not to do that. Uh, and then our prime minister was in Israel uh, early, early last year, 2020, just before the, the pandemic. Uh, and some of the officials I talked to said that uh, Israel uh, said that if Sweden does not adopt the examples, Israel would not participate at the conference. So, so uh, they, <clears throat> that probably was the reason why Sweden in the end uh, ending up, ended up uh, adopting them. And their uh, officials have also told me that there was a lot of uh, pressure and bullying on, uh, on Sweden and on other countries to, to, uh, to adopt the, the example. So this is sort of a part of the, uh, the background story. And there's also ongoing research uh, on this from, uh, from different sources. There was a, an, an Al Jazeera report on this uh, also earlier uh, this year. So, so uh, yeah, this, this I think is part of the background uh, that, uh, that people should uh, be aware of. Thank you. Looking at, I mean, this fits into my next question. I, I'm interested in how this conference fits into the broader trends in Europe. Um, you know, we saw a while ago, there was sort of a rush by a bunch of countries to, to adopt the IRA definition and to you know, make statements in support of fighting against semitism, blah, 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 but specifically around the IRA definition. That seemed to have tapered off for a while. And, and then more recently, you know, you get the, when a country like Hungary is saying, we're gonna do this, um, or even Poland, where you have you know, really much more um, deeply entrenched anti-Semitism, but also a very close illiberal bond with illiberal politics in Israel. And you see this, you know, um, celebrating the definition. How does this fit in? How does this conference fit into these trends in Europe? And I'd also, and maybe this is, I don't know if this is a question you feel like you can answer. I'm interested in how you see with the differentiation between the, the definition in its frame and the examples and the extent to which we're seeing some efforts, and I've seen this, I, I track all the different statements, and I feel like we are seeing more statements that either just reference the frame and not the examples, or adopt the frame and then reference the examples as something that will be sort of used as a consulting, you know, will be used as a, you know, as a help in understanding, but not adopting them with a formality of, of the definition. Where, where do you see those things? Yeah, I mean, first of all, when, when it comes to sort of the broad question of, of where things stands in Europe, then I, I would basically say that the, the battle has been won by IRA in Europe. Uh, for example, the European Council, the highest decision-making body of, of the EU, has adopted uh, IRA, so has the European uh, Parliament. And of course, most of the members of IRA are European states. Uh, so, so, so that means that I think IRA has pretty much won if we were to call it the battle for Europe, that is very important. It should not be underestimated because Europe and the EU is the largest block of liberal democracies in the world. 
And as such, they have a lot of clout when it comes to all kinds of normative things. I have written about this in, you know, when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We'll get back to that in, in a while. So the fact that the EU has adopted this may, I think, lead to other countries, other liberal democracies, like Australia, for example. Uh, it, it, it increases the chances that other countries, especially democracies, will adopt this. And this will be very important for, I think, what is the next big battleground for, for, for IDA, which is the UN. Uh, so the fact that the EU has adopted this will make it, I think, likelier uh, that other countries will adopt it too. And I think that the next battleground is, is the UN. We see, for example, that uh, Israel's ambassador to the US and also Israel's UN ambassador, uh, Gilad Ardan, is pushing, is pushing for this. Uh, another thing which I think is worth mentioning is that uh, the, the EU, the European Union, has been stuck and very weakened and divided when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It hasn't really done anything there for the past five years. It hasn't been able to put out an official statement. But here, when it comes to IRA, they are very united. Well, at least when it comes, I mean, yes, always when, it, when we talk about the EU, there will be a different kind of thing. But they have put out a lot of things here. We have seen uh, an EU handbook uh, on antisemitism. Uh, we have seen a new uh, EU strategy came last week, uh, and both of them are based on IRA. So, so that's uh, further uh, evidence how IRA is being mainstreamed very fast uh, in Europe. Uh, and again, it comes back to here that IRA gets a sort of quasi-legal status as it you know, gets into becoming part of, of, of education, laws, you know, police training. Uh, I think also we should say that this, we are in the beginning of something where we don't know the end. And of course, many different scenarios here uh, are possible uh for the future and and as i said i mean who knows where we stand in, you know in 10 years when it comes to how this is treated in 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 classroom so uh so we are at the beginning of something but i have warned that this is a you know a clear and growing threat to freedom of speech here in europe i have even compared it to the Muhammad cartoons, which I often say were sort of last decade's big debate of freedom of speech. And I am afraid that IRA will be this decade's big debate uh, for freedom of, of speech. Uh, and that's, then, actually, sorry, that's actually a great segue because I, I wanna talk to you about your article. Um, I do wanna say, um, and if you wanna say something about this, you may, you're, you're welcome to. I, I think it's worth noting there is pushback. This isn't all happening without pushback. And you know, I don't know if for people who didn't see it, there was a a um, an academics letter that was released um, this week, just before Malmo, expressing concerns signed by Israeli and European academics. Um, a very very strong statement. There is the Jerusalem Declaration, which came out of a project of the Van Leer Institute in Israel. Um, there, there's been there's the Nexus uh, Nexus document came out of UCLA. You, you've had. A, a number of these, and you have numerous, very, very important statements coming out of Palestinian rights groups, Palestinian academics. I mean, there is a, there's pushback, and some of this pushback is increasingly organized. Um, and I, I don't, I think it's too soon to, to say what impact that will have. I will say in the US, um, for folks who had hoped that with the new Biden administration, things like the Jerusalem Declaration would give them space to adopt a more nuanced position than the Trump administration, they have been um, sadly disappointed. 
Um, and, and as we move ahead and we have a new um, anti-Semitism monitor um, for the US news anti-Semitism ambassador, um, when that person is um, confirmed, um, so far by all accounts, it appears that she will be in all likelihood solidly in the IRA camp. Um, and she, she was at Malmo, correct? Was Deborah Lipset there? No, she was not. She wasn't not there. as far as that. No, no, because she was not. Uh, no, she was not because she's not confirmed. She's not confirmed. Yeah. Yes, of course. That no, would be inappropriate. Was, yeah, mm, of course. She can't mm, go until she's confirmed. Um, so I want to go to um, my last couple of questions. You, you've written, you write about this stuff a lot, Some, sometimes in English, if we're lucky, for those of us who don't read Swedish. Um, can you talk about um, the issue of the growing threat to freedom of speech a little bit more? And specifically, you had a piece in Times of Israel, we'll put a link to that in, in the text along with this podcast, um, talking about what you just said, which is a really interesting comparison, not of the actual substance of the issue, but of the impact of this debate on free speech, comparing the Muhammad cartoons um, to the IRA definition. Um, can you talk to us about those things? And that's, that's a really fascinating and obviously kind of provocative framing. For sure, uh, and I have some criticism for that here. But at first, I, I wrote uh, the same piece in, in English and, and in Swedish, where I sort of outlined six threats to freedom of speech posed by uh, IRA. Uh, and the first one was that IRA is being used to, to, to silence factually correct criticism uh, of Israel. And the example I used was, I think, the best example I could find, which was when Swedish, Sweden's f former foreign minister, Magnus Wallström, criticized Israel back in 2016 for uh, extrajudicial killings. That was a factually correct statement. Uh, and for people who know, uh, you know, Israel know that these things are the biggest judicial scandals in Israel, the bus 300 affair from the 1980s, uh, Elor Asaria shooting a couple of years ago. So, I mean, it isn't really a debate that these things have not happened. Uh, but she was being criticized for being an anti-Semite with references to IRA and the double standard. Uh, so this is a, so a super clear example of how factually correct criticism of Israel can be silenced uh, or, or uh, yeah, silenced, but, but with, with the references to IRA. And today, when somebody Googles her name, those anti-Semites, uh, one gets you know twenty thousand matches on uh, on Google, so that shows sort of the how how widespread uh, it is. Um, and of course, the second threat we've talked about that the freedom of speech is the increasing and incremental mainstream mainstreaming uh, of IRA, the definition and the examples. The third is that IRA's def, uh, IRA's example number seven that uh, that it is uh, racist or that is anti-Semitic to call Israel a racist endeavor goes against sort of the times we're living in where progressive forces around the world are raising accusations of institutional racism in, in basically all Western countries. Uh, and fourth is that IRA is already part of cancel culture. We see pro-Palestinian groups getting their events canceled uh, with references to, to, to IRA. And number five is that IRA is becoming a threat to freedom of speech and social media. We have talked about that too. And six, and finally, uh, IRA is uh, the definition and the examples are, I think, colliding with where the debate on Israel-Palestine is right now. It talks about apartheid, uh, various forms of one-state solutions and equal rights, uh, debates about anti-Zionism, uh, settler colonialism, these kind of issues. 
And can I add, I mean, it's interesting that it, I, this collision, that last point, I don't think for me as an analyst of, of these issues, I don't think it's by accident that the rising energy behind IRA to shut down this tougher criticism of Israel is coinciding with Israel's growing illiberalism, growing rejection really of, of any kind of reasonable two-state solution and, and all of that. I, I would actually, I saw yesterday um, a member of the Israeli Knesset, Bezalel Smotrich, who's a far right-wing member of the Knesset, he said on the Knesset floor, I'm quoting, talking to the Palestinian citizens of Israel who are in the Knesset, you're only here by mistake because Ben-Gurion didn't finish the job, didn't throw you out in 48. Which is a striking statement because Palestinians, when they claim that they were ethnically cleansed, thrown out in 48, under the IRA definition, are accused of anti-Semitism now, right? So it, it, it's a really an interesting moment politically where the discourse on one side is becoming ever more illiberal and open about what Israel is doing. And the other side actually stating the fact of what the other side is doing is now gonna be called anti-Semitic for stating it. Yeah, I, I would add to that by saying, I mean, there are sort of several debates going on here at the same time. One debate is sort of, you know, within IRA. So, okay, what are we gonna do? What, what will happen? Another debate is of course among sort of right-wing pro-Israeli NGOs. How should we use IRA? I mean, so that is sort of a separate uh, debate. And they will, of course, use IRA here for protecting the occupation and protecting the settlement. I mean, no doubt about uh, that. Uh, I think some of them are quite open uh, about that as well. But back to and, my and, point. And, you, and you, and I have, you and I have talked about this. One of the things that I find the most painful about this IRA debate is that at a time when I'm experiencing as a Jewish American, I'm seeing in my society the worst actual anti-Semitism in my lifetime here and in the world. And for some reason, the organized debates, the, the organized Jewish community internationally, the political energies are all being focused on shutting down criticism of Israel. It's, it's, it's such a, a it, it's just striking that I, it's, anyway, we, we've, I, we've talked about this before. I, I want you to actually talk a little bit more though about your latest article because the framing of it is, is so, <laughs> it's so interesting. And I think it is, again, it's very provocative, but I think it makes people think more about this idea of free speech and, and what, they're, what they're really not maybe considering the, the, the implications of, of, of this IRA road. Yeah, and so the, the other argument they made was that I, I am afraid that IRA will be the greatest threat to, to freedom of speech uh, <clears throat> in Western Europe and, and the US since the Muhammad cartoons. And I say that as somebody who grew up with the Muhammad cartoons. Uh, the, the people who tried to kill one of the artists lived just a block away from me. And yeah, can you remind new... people of what that story is? Just because there may be some people watching who are so young they don't remember. Yeah, no, uh, 15 years ago, a Danish newspaper published uh, a number of cartoons of Prophet Muhammad. One of them was very offensive, uh, depicting Muhammad as a terrorist with a bomb uh, on his head. Uh, and the year after that, a Swedish artist uh, drew uh, a cartoon of Muhammad uh, as a dog. Uh, and that raised a lot of issues. It, it, it led to a lot of violence. Uh, and some of these cartoonists have been targeted uh, in terror attacks and, and survived. Uh, and it has become, it still is, an enormous issue of, of sort of freedom of, uh, of speech versus sort of minority rights. It's a, it's a super difficult and very painful issue. 
uh, that raises all kinds of, of, of emotions. Uh, and of course, I see the similarities here. Both IRA from the beginning, it was a Swedish initiative. So both sort of IRA and the Muhammad cartoons, they came from here. Uh, and both of them are very, very emotional, which I don't find in debates sort of say re regarding Russia or, 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 or China. Uh, so they come from here, they raise emotions. They are, of course, about sort of uh, minority and majority relations uh, in Western societies. They're also about the fact that the conflicts from the Middle East are being played out here uh, in Western uh, societies. And here in Europe, they, they sort of also play into our failed integration policies. Like, for example, we see uh, in Malmö. I don't really think that you have the same uh, kind of debate uh, in the U.S. Uh, regarding that. So, so, um, so these are some of sort of the similarities uh, between the two debates, uh, and I think that they are they are that uh, uh, they are very striking. Then, of course, there are also sort of things that are different as well. So, <clears throat> the threat to freedom of speech from the Muhammad cartoons came sort of from below. Whereas the threat from IRA comes from above, from sort of governments and parliaments and laws and all of that. So that's a big, uh, that's a big difference. But I think it's sort of, uh, it is worth mentioning that here. So we're running out of time. I want to give you one last chance to, to sort of get out your crystal ball. You've already said we shouldn't underestimate the impact in Europe. IRA has largely already won. Um, I tried to temper that a tiny bit with a little bit of hope because, yes, there is pushback. Um, for sure, for sure. Yeah, my, my concern, and I, I see this in the United States with, you know, the anti-free speech laws that are related to Israel-Palestine, it's sort of like, you know, people are willing to support this stuff because nobody wants to be accused of not fighting anti-Semitism, and they, they're unwilling to realize the risk to free speech until it's their free speech that is being quashed, <laughs> and that is a problem. Um, but, you know, pulling out your crystal ball, the conference is over. It was, as you said, maybe they won't say it publicly, maybe a little bit of a disappointment in terms of the turnout and the IRA definition was not actually the star of the show. Um, what do you see happening next? Is this just now a blip on the screen and things go back to as they were two days ago before the conference? Or does this actually now make some sort of difference and change our trajectory going forward? Well, I think there are a couple of things that need to be mentioned. First, of course, it's that sort of the whole issue of raising public awareness, which I think is huge. I mean, if I go out here on the street and ask people if they know what IRA is, I'll bet you that 99.9% .9 of people will say they have no clue. You know? And even sort of top officials and people working within ministries are not really sort of many of them, they don't really know what this is about. And it, was, and it was raises difficult issues about, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that, that they may not be aware of and all these kind of issues. But looking forward here, Sweden will be uh, the host uh, state for IRA over the coming year. I'm not sure what kind of questions they will, will push for. Uh, of, I think, you know, the whole issue of social media countering anti-Semitism there will be a big issue for the future. They, of course, have a huge power as well. Uh, and and uh, how they define uh, anti-Semitism will, of course, be key for how they counter it and what they should you know, take away from their platforms. And the whole issue of labels, I think, will be an important issue uh, for the future. Uh, and I think that the next battle for IRA will be the UN. It will be interesting to see what will happen there. Interesting to see, for example, how uh, the, the countries of the Abraham Accords, how they will, how, how they will tackle this. Uh, and, of course, 
further mainstreaming of IRA uh, in laws, in education, in police training, in courts, which I think would be probably the most important question going forward. And also, of course, interesting of how to follow uh, the pushback and the critics, which also seems to be growing. Thank you. I think that's a great place to leave it. I will just make as, as just an aside, every time I see somebody tweeting about Ira and they tweet what seems like the intuitively obvious Twitter handle, but it, by accident, they tweet the handle of the International Hot Rod Association, which is ira.com. It always just gives me a moment to smile. Um, so with that, we're going to stop here. Anders, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your experience, your insights. Um, I'm happy you're there on the ground, and I think we'll probably come back to you again now that, now that we know you're willing to do podcasts with us on short notice. Thank you. For our audience, thanks for listening and for watching. Don't forget to follow Anders. He's at Twitter. That's 82AndersPerson. And finally, as always, I want to remind people to subscribe to the Occupied Thoughts podcast. You can do so on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. That way you won't miss any of the great content we're posting almost every week, sometimes more. And you can also find the podcast and a video of the podcast on our website at www.fmap.org. Uh, and with that, uh, we'll end this here. I'm Laura Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts.